0: grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm recording this at Vox Media headquarters in New York City. And we're about to leave there and go to Austin, Texas. You know what's going on in Austin, Texas. That's South by Southwest, where everyone is talking about podcasting. So here is one of those discussions. It's a podcasting panel. I did with Bethany McLean and Jacob Weisberg from Pushkin Industries. You guys, if you're longtime listeners, have heard Jacob Weisberg talk about podcasting on this show before, as well as Marshall Williams from Ad Results Advertising. Okay, let's talk about the business of podcasting. Hi, everyone, welcome to Podcasters talking about podcasting in the podcast studio to a room full of people, I think, who are all podcasters. Is that right? (laughs) Who here does not have a podcast? Oh, all right. We'll tell you why you should or shouldn't do it. Um, <laughs> thanks for coming, thanks for standing in line. Your reward is uh, about 45 minutes into this. If you have questions, you get to ask them. Your questions will probably be better than mine, so think of those excellent questions. I'm gonna the panel here, quickly introduce themselves, explain who they are and what they do for
2: a living. I'm Jacob Weisberg, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Pushkin, which is a new podcasting company that Malcolm and Gladwell and I started in October.
3: I'm Bethany McLean. I'm a longtime print journalist, and since none of us are sure print journalism is going to exist much longer, I'm a prospective podcaster.
4: Love it. Uh, my name is Marshall Williams. I'm the founder and CEO of Ad Results Media. Uh, we place a pretty significant amount of advertising in the podcast space. We represent roughly a third of all dollars in the space, and um, love it. Absolutely love the space.
1: That is an excellent intro. We're going to talk about the business of podcasting. Um, is there a business in podcasting? I think we all believe there is. That's why we're here. Uh, we're going to talk about how it works. Is anyone here paying to listen to a podcast? Okay, that is zero hands in the room. So we all understand one model, which is you hit subscribe to your platform of choice, Apple Podcasts. There's some Apple people here, Spotify, etc. You listen to a podcast. It may or may not have ads. That's how podcasts work today. Jacob, that has worked for you up until now. You've had successful podcasts. It's working for you, Marshall. You're selling ads in some of those podcasts. Uh, Marshall, can you give us a quick primer on uh, how podcast advertising works? When I hear a podcast ad and either do or don't take an action, what happens? How does someone get paid? Okay, so uh,
4: our business, a little bit of background on, on just how we got started and that kind of thing. Our business is 20 years old. 21 years old, and it began as a radio company. And our style of advertising was to have the radio hosts in their particular drive times endorse a product or service that we represented, a client of ours. We were the, we were the agent. And um, we, we became pretty successful at that. Our systematic approach to how we advertise is, is such that um, if we identify what works and what doesn't, uh, we placed our dollars in that. We owned a bunch of real estate on radio and got to where we were capped out. And we were like, okay, what's the next logical extension? Well, we were obviously spoken word uh, because it's a host read endorsement. And then we kind of encountered podcasting, just a complete fluke fall out of the sky thing. I read an article on Adam Carolla and this was 2000 in April of 2010. And we uh, began advertising on Adam's show.
1: And he's someone who got into podcasting because he had failed at TV. He had a CBS failed podcast at TV. That, that that fired him and he, yeah. he couldn't go he was on radio but he, he couldn't he couldn't compete with himself anymore. Uh-uh. So he did podcasting as a joke, <laughs> as a lark.
4: <laughs> he couldn't compete against himself. I love that. Um, he had he was on a radio program that was on by CBS at the time. Um, they changed the format of the radio property. He was displaced Um, And so I think almost as a lark, he decided to do his morning show that he was doing on Los Angeles radio out of his garage. Very honestly, out of his garage. Car parts everywhere, hoods open on cars, out of his garage. And we uh, researched how to get in touch with Adam and a friend of his wife's called us back and said, what do you want? Uh, And I said, we want to advertise on Adam's podcast. Well, what do you pay? I don't know, what do you charge? I don't know. Um, so we arranged for a fee-based structure based on performance, and we thought it might be a few thousand dollars. Well, it ended up being a lot more than we expected. Performance means what?
1: Let's spell that out.
4: Okay, so uh, we're a performance marketing company, and when we say performance, it's defined as, and you guys, if you listen to podcasts, you've heard ZipRecruiter or Quip or Robinhood or whatever, go to uh, Robinhood.com, enter this code, or go to Robinhood.com slash... Recode. Yep. Okay. Enter this, and you'll get a special offer or whatever. Um, That's how we quantify success in currently in our universe. Just
1: to get super granular, are you getting? Is is is, does performance mean I went to the website, or I went to the website and I signed up, or I went to the website and signed up and actually paid someone money?
4: Um, There's some uh metrics in there that we have to kind of suss out but it's actually based on transactions
1: and if i if if i hear that robin hood ad but i don't want to trade stocks because you shouldn't be buying and selling individual stocks if you're a regular human being you should buy an index fund and let it sorry Robinhood. Uh, if i don't if i don't transact it's <laughs> a wonderful they're app. fine I'm, if i don't transact Robinhood doesn't get charged and Adam Carolla or you, whoever the, the what, okay, so that the, chain, the, no one makes any the, money. The
4: pricing model for buying advertising in the podcast space right now is based on a cost per thousand multiple. So for every thousand downloads you have at this point, and that's another whole another panel, um, uh, we charge or we are charged a X dollars based on every thousand CPM is the industry term for it. Every 1,000 downloads so that's that place. The same,
1: and place. That, so that's the same as me putting a web display ad or putting an ad in a physical newspaper, right? This many people are going to see or hear the thing. You're going to get paid for that. And then the performance part is on top of that? That's correct. Okay.
4: Now, we agree to pay this CPM. We run the advertising on it. We use the the metrics that I described a few moments ago as the proxy for effectiveness. If we see the proper numbers come back or proper multiples come back, then we continue to, to invest. And I'll say this I'm as excited as I've ever been about an audio space going back 30 years in the radio world because this is some of the most successful performance we've seen,
1: period. So I want to come back to that and who's advertising with you and how that works. Jacob, you and Malcolm did a very successful podcast uh, called
2: Revisionist History. Revisionist History. Still History. doing it. Now we're season, season four in June.
1: That many seasons. It's great. You were doing that model, right? Essentially getting paid, the podcasts are free, people listen to them. Now you're doing your own podcasting company, you're employing Bethany, right? Different model, same model, mix.
2: Well, here's the the larger picture as I see it. So advertising on podcasts um, are amazing because people like them. I've never seen, I've never been around a form of advertising on media before where often, People look forward to the ads as much as the content. And sometimes the ads are more entertaining than the Should content. Should we do a quick poll? Who, <laughs> who fast
1: forwards through their podcast? It's very easy to fast forward, right? Note
2: for the audio audience. 25%. Not the minute. but anyway, not bad. Some people do. But generally the ads, because they don't interrupt because of the host read, they don't interrupt. It's a continuous experience. A lot, of the, uh, a lot of the hosts have a lot of fun with them. Malcolm <laughs> Gladwell certainly does. And it's made this is this phenomenon of the of the well liked host red ads. I've referred to Marshall before as the Lorenzo de Medici of podcasting. He's made this whole this whole industry possible. So it's, so we love the ads and we and we expect the ads to continue. But I think that long term. To have a healthy content business you have to have multiple revenue streams and you don't want to be completely dependent on advertising and that is why at pushkin we're extremely interested in the experimentation that is really starting to unfold around paid content models but i don't see them as one or the other i think ultimately to be a healthy sustainable industry podcasting needs both advertising revenue and revenue from listeners. Will I be paying for podcasts that also have ads in them? It's possible. I mean, that's on Hulu. You you yeah. pay for content that also has ads in it. I'm not sure. It seems more natural that if you pay, you don't get ads. And it's Slate, which was my old company. If you became a Slate Plus member, you got the podcast without ads, and people really like that as a benefit. At least to have the. Although some people like to listen to the ads anyway. Um, so you know, I don't think we know exactly how it's going to work. Uh, we also don't know if we're going to sell podcasts directly to customers, or it's going to be through a Netflix model like Luminary, which is where Bethany's doing her show, or whether it's going to be, you know, there, there, are, there are a lot of possible paid models, and there's very little basis for saying, here's how it's going to be years down the road. Because But that's the entire point of this session, so we're going to pretend. Uh, <laughs>
1: um, Bethany, you are a hyper-successful journalist, longtime fortune writer, now you're at Vanity Fair, written a couple books. If you guys have read Enron's Smartest Guys in the Room or watched the, the great Alex Gibney doc, that's Bethany. What provoked you to make a podcast?
3: Well, I think print journalism is really at a crossroads and I like to believe that it's going to survive in some form or another, but long form magazine journalism in particular is is under siege. And so I guess when you're at risk of becoming a dinosaur, um, you have two options. One is to crawl off in your cave and do whatever dinosaurs did before they went extinct. Or the other is to say, well, maybe I do actually have some other skills and I've always thought I have no other skills other than writing magazine stories. But maybe after 25 years of doing this, I do have a few other skills like interviewing people and I have a lot of thoughts about the business world after covering this stuff for what's frightening but a quarter century now Um, so I thought what what a great opportunity to take some of these other skills and and do a podcast and the idea for my show was pretty simple which is I, I do consider myself kind of a connoisseur of business journalism after all these years. So to find the pieces that I think are really important to the books, the articles each week, and and go interview the author, and hopefully over time that will turn into a way to bring attention to topics that perhaps aren't getting the aren't getting the attention that they deserve, um, and highlight authors who maybe aren't aren't getting the attention they deserve, but um, with a wraparound of commentary by me about why this issue is so important. Were
1: you listening to podcasts prior to prior yeah, to this?
3: Yeah, I, I listened to Malcolm's podcast. And- Others. And how
1: did did Malcolm or Jacob come to you and say, hey, Bethany, or did you say I had this idea and go to them or were you shopping it around?
3: No, I came to Jacob with the idea and said, I have this really simple, straightforward idea. What do you think? It's not heavily produced. It's just a straightforward interview show builds on skills that hopefully I have. Um, so I brought it to Jacob.
1: Guess okay, so you're going to compete with me? Probably <laughs> not, crush not, me. Not
3: really. I think it's pretty different, actually. I like um, believe it is.
1: Actually, just for argument's sake, uh, we, Kara Swisher and I, were talking about podcasting for a long time before we got into it. Um, it was, we have a here's an anecdote where we went to Bob Pittman, who runs Clear Channel, which is radio. This is four or five years ago. We walked through. He's got a tunnel. To, he's got a hallway that's like a mist tunnel that you walk through to get through. And he said, "Podcast. No one wants to do podcasts. You guys should do live radio." So we wasted a year listening to Bob Pittman. Um, Apologies, somebody here
2: works for him. Uh, He wants to do a podcast now.
1: (laughs) I bet he does. Did you think I can do this myself? I'm, I'm I'm good at talking to people. Talking into mics can't be that much harder. I bet I can hire someone and maybe work with someone like Marshall and do the whole thing myself.
3: So I thought the podcast industry, from what I could understand about it, and I think it's the wild west right now, which means there's a lot of opportunity, but also a lot of confusion. But to me, I thought two things. One is that it is on the cusp of this transition into perhaps a, a, a different sort of industry where the podcast might be more produced and have more of a show like feeling. So you could go your own route, but if you're going to go your own route, for me, you have to be a business person. You have to go out and find advertising. You have to go out and find find a producer. You have to go. Find studio space. And I realized for better or worse, I'm not interested in that side of things. I'm interested in the content and I want to produce really great content, but I don't necessarily want to be my own business person at the same time. So that sent me in a slightly different direction. And in then the same way that
1: musicians can put their own thing out on SoundCloud, but they eventually want to sign with a label perhaps, often, oftentimes.
3: Perhaps right. So that's a bet on my part that the industry is moving in that direction. And then there is that trade off with uh, with an advertising driven model versus a subscription model. And I I think, again, who knows, right? This is all really nascent, and it's unclear which way it's going. But if you look at what happened with video, where everybody thought this was going to be huge, and there was going to be so much advertising, and it turned into compression pretty quickly with Google and Facebook siphoning up a lot of the available money, you could see that dynamic coming to podcasting as well. So I guess if I had to bet I'm more aligned with Jacob's view of the world, that it would be better to have a couple of different revenue streams rather than just one.
1: Uh, Marshall, let's talk about the ad business that you're in and by the way, your sponsor here is Cadence 13. They're in the advertising business. There's a specific kind of profile of a podcast advertiser, right? It's someone who wants a direct response. So they could be selling socks, like the fine Mac Weldon socks I'm wearing here, promo code recode. Uh, it could be Robin Hood. Um, sometimes there's a GE or something, but most of this stuff is someone getting someone to do something they want you to buy or sign up for something. So why, why is that happening now, and is that going to change?
4: Well... I think the with any new media that comes out, you tend to have the performance marketing groups go after it first. First of all, the price of entry tends to be pretty low, and they're willing to say if we can test it and learn, see it work, et cetera, then we want to invest in that. That's usually what happens um, in right, a new. So, media what, are, space. what are
1: examples of, of a new medium starting and performance marketing showing up first before anybody else?
4: Um, well, I mean, the long-form TV, thirty-minute television, is a, a good example. It was. You know that was like a. Or, or the original companies that went into that space were companies that would produce their own content and put it up to just sell the whole thirty minutes to right.
1: That's a little different. They weren't trying to get you to go. Well, you couldn't go online and buy sauce because there were no computers.
4: Yeah, but if you looked at those those thirty minute segments, they were full of uh, "Buy right now," "Call this number," or "We're standing by," that kind of thing. Okay, that's that's so you get that's one example of it. This is another one with. We uh, have been a performance marketing company since the beginning, and most of our clients believe in the same you know, metric-driven decision-making that we do, but we've also found that the branded companies have uh, been approaching this space a lot more. Um, one, there's an alignment with top quality content, very high-end, very able to reach um, a thoughtful, well-educated, affluent individual. Um, So there are a lot of companies who want to get into that space for that alignment. And the other thing is kind of the directional arrows that... Our clients have put out there with a lot of the startup space is that you're a direct to consumer brand, you're new, you got to get your name out there. Here's a place that has a relatively low cost to entry,
1: and it works. Do we think the industry moves? Like, so Facebook forever has been saying, we we're, we're, we're want to be in the brand advertising business. We want to take that money that people are spending selling Toyota ads on TV, and we want it. But they're really primarily, the bulk of their business is still direct-to-consumer, someone clicking on something and taking an action. Um, Do you think podcasts are going to remain a direct-to-consumer business for a long time, or do you think they graduate up into the the branded stuff?
4: I think once we get, um, I think it it will always have a segment of the performance marketing group. Okay, it will, because it works well. and uh, Even at some of the higher CPM levels, you still get performance. Because one, one,
1: one of the sort of people who sit back and go, this podcasting thing, there's a bubble here. And one of the big problems is a lot of these companies that are selling socks or Robinhood or whatever, ton of VC money, so the money's being transferred from the VCs to you guys, um, maybe to me and Bethany and Jacob. Um, and once that bubble inevitably pops, this thing all goes away.
4: Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see a bubble. We have a consistent funnel of clients who call us. It used to be they would call us and say, radio, we want to be in radio or what have you. But now... Uh, these are very well-funded, very well-established companies who say, we want to be in podcasting first. One, we can show performance. Two, the recognition we get from aligning ourselves with shows like Jacobs and, and Malcolm's and soon-to-be-yours, I hope. Um, it's it's phenomenal. They just get this the most positive feedback you could imagine in terms of just like, those are the kind of people we want to reach. This is awesome. Hey, it's Peter,
1: cutting in for a quick second to tell you that we're going to take a quick break. And then we'll be right back with Marsha Williams and Bethany McLean and Jacob Weisberg.
0: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N 29.com.
1: I want to open this up to all of you guys. In in the old days, and I'm old, I remember the first web ads. uh, I think the first one was like Hotwire. Uh, I can't remember who I was. Um, but they, and they also had like an 80% click-through rate, because no one had seen a web ad before, so everyone clicked on them. And by the way, my kids now see so few ads that when they see them, they find them to be a, a great novelty. But, so right now we have entertaining ad reads from Malcolm, et cetera, they still are easy to skip. Do you think if once more people listen to more podcasts and they realize, all right, I've heard a version of Malcolm reading this forever, I'm going to skip past this, and the effectiveness of that kind of advertising drops down?
2: I mean digital display advertising is one of the things that turned the internet into a misery, right, and you know the 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 retargeting ads that chase you around the like eye blaster type ads it became such an unpleasant experience that it spawned the whole industry of, of ad blocking we can't let that happen in podcasting. I think there's no reason why it has to happen in podcasting. You start from this basis of Incredible love for the medium, people liking the ads this, this extraordinary engagement, and then the ad load's not that heavy on podcasting i mean the the general the ad load for an hour of podcast listening is a lot less than even the sponsorship uh, load on public radio so it's not killing anybody. People understand you 've got to pay to support this content one way or the other. I think the mistake would be to let the ads degrade in quality, to let them increase too much in quantity relative to the, the amount of listening. But they do have these distinct phenomenons. I and mean, we, we've, we've got the, the love and the engagement. What we don't have is the precision targeting and the data that a lot of advertisers went, want. That's part of what's kept it's held back some of the brand advertisers uh, in addition to the sort of non they don't standardization. Know what yeah, I mean on Facebook they can say we want this we want this demographic. We're going after teenage boys in this place. You know, you can't you can't target in that way on a podcast, which is why it favors the performance advertisers who essentially apply their own data. They 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 know what I know what sold getting. some socks. Yeah, they're giving you an offer code. They know exactly what they're getting out of advertising on a podcast. But a big brand advertiser doesn't have that, that feedback right now. The absence of feedback doesn't mean the ad's not effective. I suspect they're extremely effective just because of the kind of recall you get and the kind of response you get, but you can't show it the way you can show it on Facebook. Bethany, you are a, a long time
1: journalist. I mean, in the best possible way. And old time, long time journalists never touched advertising, right? So- there's a wall between the two. Often there are different floors. Oftentimes there's even different elevators between the ad department and the edit department. They used to call it
3: department. church and state, um, <laughs> Way back How when. do
1: you feel about reading ads?
3: Well, so let me back up to one point that made me more interested in doing a podcast this fall as I was contemplating this, this idea, and that is users' engagement with podcasts. I had a little book come out this fall, and I was struck by we all stare obsessively about at our Amazon rankings, um, whenever you've published a book, just you can you know chart it every hour to see where it's going. And I was struck by what a dramatic impact podcasts had on how my book was selling. And that's because I think users and podcasts are just deeply engaged in the how, content. How did you measure that? So, by, did you by, measure, by just, just how would move up the Amazon rankings. Totally. And it was much more dramatic than TV or a radio slot if, if I were featured on somebody's podcast that had a lot of listeners. So I think there is a really dramatically different um, level of engagement with the content and then with whatever comes along with with that content. I don't know about the reading and Have you
2: broached I, that? Have you, I, I th- mean, th- is it going to be part of what you do?
3: We're not there yet. So.
2: We're developing a Bethany show with Luminary, so it's going to be in an ad-free environment, so and you're, that, you don't have to do this yet. So we're not going to compromise her. Just, we're not going to compromise her at this point.
4: Jacob, we need to talk about this after the <laughs> session here. Um, I do want to say one thing to your earlier point about clutter. Okay, because I do think I, I love this media. Um, I love the connective tissue that takes place between a host and a listener. I love the entertainment value. I love the knowledge I get from it. I love the suspense, whatever it may be, okay? And I don't want to radioize it. And don't get me wrong, I don't want to villainize radio because it's an important part of our business. But if you listen to an hour of local radio, you will hear breaks at 15, 35, and 50 with four commercials in each stop set. That will
1: ruin the space. And the ads are different, too. they are people yelling at you. Yeah, right? And the quality over of the ads and over. like, we're having thing. a
4: sale this weekend. Yeah. Come out to the car dealership and that kind of thing. And that's not what podcasting should be in my mind. And I'm an advertiser, okay?
1: Did I, you know this going in, this is going to be a different thing? It should sound different? Or not, were you selling radio after, ads at the beginning?
4: Not until after we got into the space and realized how that connection takes place between the audience. I mean, I, had, I read an, an interview somewhere where somebody said, I can't remember who it was, they said, earbuds change everything because it's almost as if you have a narrator in your head. And that's what podcasting is. It's that direct voice to you that's entertaining, funny, insightful, whatever it is.
1: Super intimate.
4: Super intimate and mobile. Okay, We used to say, well, what about video and that kind of thing? It's not innately mobile. Okay, Podcasting is. You can listen to it on the subway. You can listen to it while you're mowing the yard. You can listen to it while you're walking the baby or the dog or whatever. It's fantastic.
1: Bill Simmons, who's an early podcast guy, has a great story about being somewhere like this and some guy walking up to him and going... I'm listening to you right now, and here you are in real life, and it's blowing my
2: mind, man. There's nothing more flattering than being voice recognized. It's so much better than having your face recognized from TV. Agreed. I,
3: I think I might do well on the voice recognition front. At least I'm hoping for that. <laughs> anyway, but I do want to draw a line. Actually, as I thought more about your question on the average on the advertising, it's interesting. Today, you read Axios's newsletter, for example, and their ads sprinkled right into the newsletter. This is brought to you by cool. and it, I, If I were to if I were to be doing a segment in my podcast that was very hard on the banking industry, and JPMorgan Chase wanted me to read an ad for JPMorgan Chase, I, I mean, I'd be fine with that. I think that's okay. It's different if then JPMorgan Chase wants you to pay to make the content content-friendly to them. I and mean, that's where the line gets crossed, right?
4: And let me say that, that what you just said, um, I'm fine supporting J.P. Morgan Chase from our client perspective. That's due diligence we do with every host. We want them to understand the, the quality, the high quality of the product, the benefits of it, and then to put it in their own vernacular. Um, I don't want it to be, here, read this.
1: But Oftentimes we, it says, host now explains personal experience with product, Right. And, and I'll do that if it makes sense. But, and if that's I, what we want. but if I don't yeah. need that product or use that well, product, well, we, then I'll say you can't oh. do it, right? If somebody couple?
3: wants me to advertise shoes, I'll what do you that worried? What are you worrying mean, so That's okay. If
4: I brought you a shoe
1: company, you'd be
3: all good,
4: right? You push the paywall stuff right out the door, right?
2: Yeah. But that, that's got to be optional for hosts. I mean, we, you know, and hosts have to have the ability to opt out of voicing an ad for an advertiser they don't feel comfortable with for any any reason, kind of a conscience clause for hosts. But, you know, the the let's just acknowledge that the church is built a lot closer to the State in podcasts than it was in newspapers or still is at the New York Times. And the reason I think that's okay is, first of all, it is the established tradition in the medium. We've had host read sponsor message since the early days of radio, and listeners understand when they're hearing an ad. You think the audience gets it and they get the full mm-hmm. transaction? I think that's the key thing. They've got to know it's an ad. If you're confusing listeners about what's an ad and what's not an ad, that's that's the line that you can't cross but i think that having a host read because people understand what a host read is they don't think the ad for mac weldon is part of your program they understand you're voicing an ad for the sponsor you're doing it in a playful way and you're making you're making jokes about it and you're it's well integrated and it's kind of fun but they don't th- they know it's an ad does anybody hear
1: from the ringer does anyone listen to the ringer podcast so these guys, I listen to a lot of their entertainment podcasts, and so they'll be talking about Game of Thrones or whatever show they, they're enjoying, and then they'll, then they'll stop, and now here's an ad for something on Hulu or Showtime. Does that bump anyone? Does that worry you, or do you worry that there's some connection between what they're saying when they're being paid to do it and what they're saying when they're not officially being paid to do it? Does it bother anybody? That's one yes. Okay. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit more about, about measurement. Um, this is an ongoing... Well, it's a discussion, I don't know if it's a problem. And it's, every medium has this, who is actually Consuming the ad, can we tell, right? Famously in TV, we really don't know. We have some idea, but people who sell Coca Cola will say, "Look, I know that if I buy a bunch of advertising in Cleveland, I can sell X amount percent more pallets of Coca Cola." I know it works. It doesn't need to be that precise. Web advertising is crazily precise right now, in a super scary way. If any of you use Facebook, you know you know about this. Um, and then, and then we've got podcasting, which is mostly guesswork unless someone's using an well, offer code.
4: it's a um, um, somewhat educated guess. There's, there's um, most of the, uh, I mentioned our, our, our pricing model is based on cost per thousand. So you, we pay a price based on every thousand units that are out there. We quantify that as downloads, okay? Now there's a number of ways to track downloads because downloads are, are sent to your phone. Um, there are companies that say, well, I got a download, or an IP address hit my phone, I'm not saying that
1: exactly right, but. This device started to download. Right, started this to thing download. That counts so that's a download. a download.
4: Okay. It's not really that because longer podcasts are downloaded in packets. So you might get that IP address ping in your phone a couple of times to I started download.
1: started off downloading in the hotel. I downloaded right. the rest over here. Yeah.
4: Okay. So you, you take a break and you say, okay, there's a five minute window. That's uh, one of the units of differentiation between a download. So if there's not an IP address that shows up in the five minute window, that counts as two downloads. There's some who are an hour. The IAB V2 standard is 24 hours.
1: This is a new thing.
4: That's the new thing. Now, is that right? I don't know. I don't know. We, we do need, as an industry, an agreed-to currency for quantifying a download. That will get the branded advertisers, the auto dealers, the credit card companies, the airlines, and their big agencies who have to quantify everything they do to look at it and say, okay, we've got a standard unit of measurement. That's what we're going to buy. And here's the agreed-to CPM. And so you
1: think they're sitting there, arms crossed, saying, "You guys figure this out," and when you do, I'm going to come in and I'm going to start buying ads I for real. Think some are. Some have embraced
4: the space without that level of clarity because of the fantastic quality of the content you can align with.
1: And it's got a cool halo effect, and it's it a novelty,
2: and uh, that sounds cool. I heard about that at South by Southwest. Let's go get some of that. I mean, when podcasting first started to be a business, which I experienced at Slate, where I was for many years, and we started making podcasts 13 years ago, but for a long part of that time, there was no real business. There was you know, minimal adver- advertising, if any it was apparent to me that those standards were a big part of what was lacking. And I, w- I was involved with the Internet Advertising Bureau, which had never done anything w- with audio, but you know, one of the things that was obvious was people were, there were apples to oranges comparisons. What we were saying was a download was not what another, what other podcasters were saying was a download. And I encouraged the IAB to, to apply the kind of standardization it has across digital advertising to podcasting. So argue about what the definition should be but you've got the same definition agreed upon
1: bethany are you worried as a a creator about the sort of precision of measurement when you write for print you have this almost sort of luxury of not really knowing how many people are reading your stuff there's some circ number that's kind of pretend but but no one's monitoring your performance and if you've ever worked on the web directly They know exactly, well, they think they know exactly how many people watched it and how many people are reading it concurrently at any given time. Things get very specific. You start, depending on where you work, creating a kind of content because it got more clicks than the last thing. Are you worried about going down that road?
3: Hmm. It's an interesting question, and you're right. The great luxury of print journalism has always been that your uh, piece is part of a larger magazine or a larger newspaper, and either that sells or it doesn't, but that's doing well, but you don't have this direct line to what you did um, in terms of the number of people who read it. And you can say that's bad in the sense that you can't quantify it, but you can also say that that's good in the sense that at their best, old-time print publications were equally um, neutral between doing a piece that might garner a lot of views and putting it on the cover and then investing in a really substantive piece that might not be, might not have the sex appeal. Um, for example, some of the best work I did didn't necessarily have sex appeal at the beginning of it. No one cared about a energy company down in Houston, Texas uh, that might be up to some sketchy things. And I, I think I think that's actually it's a real question. I like to believe that the great thing about podcasting thus far has been that it is an antidote to our social media, short-term driven culture. You know, it, it offers hope for the culture, not just hope for journalists and for listeners, but it is this incredibly immersive, substantive experience, which is exactly the opposite of the hot take snark that we've all, yeah. all thought was valuable. And I like to believe that through a combination of an advertising-driven market and a subscription market that you can find your fan base um, and, and people who, who care about the content that you're delivering, but it's going to be a totally different experience for me. And I've had some of it with writing online and it's yeah. really interesting. The only thing I would say... Uh, about that, maybe you'll you'll disagree with me. I have not found myself able to predict which of my stories are going to do well online. No, if you did,
1: you'd get out of that business and you'd be in the business of telling people how well their stories are. It was actually one of the
3: most hopeful things I've heard was when I was uh, at a Vanity Fair conference. It was Richard Plepler of HBO and the CEO of Instagram talking and they were asked, what makes something work? What makes something go viral? And they both said, we don't have a clue. And I I actually thought that was awesome because it shows that for all the people who are trying to track us and predict us and figure us out, we actually them so far. There's still some mystery to humans that nobody quite has the algorithm yeah. to figure out what's going you know, to work. Once with, that mystery is gone, The people I work with
1: who make video look at podcasting. You know, oh, this is insane. You don't really know who's listening, when they're listening. You don't know when they stop. We can tell you exactly how many minutes into this YouTube video people gave up. And I think, I'm so glad I don't know this right now. But I would like to know if people are listening at the end of the podcast or not.
2: You, you would. They have really different qualities. Podcasts aren't viral. They're almost totally mobile. But they're not at all viral. If you have a podcast and you do 110,000 downloads for one episode, you're probably going to do in the range of 105 to 115 with the, with the next episode. Maybe something goes a little beyond that, but it, you build an audience incrementally over time and you don't, you, you neither have huge jumps nor do you tend to lose that audience in a falling off a cliff way. It's just the opposite of a video where if you make 10 videos, one of those videos will have 20 and also the audience. You you can deliver
1: it through Facebook you can deliver it through YouTube and you've got a high you've got a lot of eyeballs coming through there here maybe you guys will tell us differently as far as i can tell the way to get people to listen to a podcast is for them to listen to another podcast and hear about your podcast through that one and it's really slow going but then then they become or you land hard. on the front page of Apple there's some Apple people here
2: Right, but, but then they become part of your audience. They're not Facebook's audience, they're not YouTube's right. audience browsing for whatever might be catch their eye that day. There are people who come back and listen to you. And that feels entirely different from web video or even written content on the web. I mean, you can, you can attract a loyal following as a writer on the web, but you still ex- have that experience of the, the virality where some piece, for reasons you can't predict, has 20 times the audience of everything else he wrote, and you don't think it's because it's 20 times better, it just hit some chord that for whatever reason, you know, got it circulating.
1: I wanna talk more about subscriptions and payments, but I wanna go back to Marshall for a second. You've now seen a a large swath of people get into podcasting. You started off with Adam Carolla, who was already a professional radio person. He was seamless when he went to podcasting, right? He was just, he took this show that was working, made it better, frankly, on podcasting. You've now seen a lot of people try versions of this. Can you tell from the get go when someone says, I want to try a podcast, here's my plan, that that is going to work or not? Um,
4: the barrier to entry is pretty low. Right. It's, this, it's, not, it's, right? Not, it's not this, maybe a laptop, some editing software, that kind of thing. You can literally, we had the good fortune of visiting Mark Maron, who was one of the, the early adopters of podcasting in his studio, which was essentially garage. his garage. I mean, he had books all over the place. And he had a laptop and a soundboard, but it was, wasn't anything fancy or anything like that. So, and this guy's making millions. And so the ability for somebody to take just their passion behind a certain subject and with a little bit of quality editing and thought behind the content, I mean, if it rambles and it doesn't make any sense and it's not linear or whatever, Well, there's caveats to that, too. So, um, uh, but that, you know, we've seen a lot of, I I think to address your question directly, I think that you can still do that. You can come out of the ether and create with good content. You can have an audience in a relatively short period of time. The discoverability in podcasting is phenomenal right now. I mean, you—you you are in the process of making a show. You're about to do this. You could have hundreds of thousands of downloads in a short window of
3: time. Tell me how. That's yeah. exciting. <laughs> okay. We're—we're. We're, but just, but, but we're can gonna you bring spot you someone who
1: coming. either is. Maybe they're already famous, they're an actor, maybe they're, they've got something else going on. They go, I'm gonna try this podcasting thing. Can you tell, either looking at them or talking to them, yeah, you could make this work, or you know what, you think this is just talking for an hour and that's not gonna work at all. Right,
4: that's not, we've, we've seen that happen. Um, uh, there was a company that, came, uh, that paid a, a very well-known comedian to do a podcast, um, and it was, here, turn the mic on and just talk.
1: They're Did, funny, right? It didn't work.
4: No, didn't. work. Why doesn't it work? Didn't work because there, there was no passion behind it. There Not was that no, good. Yeah, it wasn't that good. It was. It was. You know, I think the commentary it, that she actually said was because they were paying me to do this. When somebody asked her, so there was no passion behind it. There was no. There was no. I really want to get this out there. There was no feeling behind it, and that feeling. I've always said this about audio. It's a very emotionally transparent medium. I mean, if you drive and you listen to somebody on the radio and they're mad. As much as they try and disguise it, you can still hear that. And you can also hear somebody who's smiling, okay? And so I think that's part of it. You get people who are passionate about what they want to talk about or what they, they want to get out there, whether it's, you know, how to gamble on high ally, um, which you, is a you mentioned, really esoteric yeah, that's, that's a reference. So, there, so you mentioned yeah. Mark
1: Marin, Adam Carolla, both very successful at podcasting, make millions of dollars doing it. Um, I'm not going to ask you a percentage, but how, m- how many people that you work with do you think are making their living as podcasters? Is it dozens, hundreds, oh no, hundreds, thousands? Well into the hundreds.
4: Well into the hundreds. Paying we did a little mortgage, bit of back of the envelope, rent. back of the envelope math. Uh, fifty thousand downloads, okay? And I think uh, our our chief revenue officer Steve Shanks back there for our company said there's probably five or six hundred of those that did yield fifty thousand or better downloads. They do 60 or 75 minutes once a week, and they have four ad units in there, um, and we deal with a CPM that's average, not high, not low, but kind of average for us. They can probably net 170 thousand a year.
1: And so that's not because there was for a while there were a lot of comedians doing it, but they were really promoting their live show, and that's right? how they justified it. But you saying you you can make it—that's a, a good living.
4: Make a really good living.
1: At at fifty thousand. Yeah, well, just think
4: about what the multiples are if you do yeah. 100 or 500 thousand or a million. So that sounds pretty good, Jacob. Why why do we
2: need to do paid? Well a few a few caveats. I mean first of all, I think that's for a weekly conversational show. It doesn't involve a lot of production. Most of the shows we're doing are uh, both much less frequent and much more highly produced than that. So a show like
1: revision, people on a plane and they're going to go talk to someone. And yeah, be I mean we're
2: doing something quite like journalism. Um, but you know Malcolm Gladwell travels all over the world doing interviews for his uh, podcast. He has we have multiple producers working on the show, and we work really hard to make ten episodes in a year. So the the threshold. You do, that show does not turn a profit at 50,000 listeners or even a few hundred thousand listeners. Honestly, to be successful, that show has to be above a million or into the millions. You need no, a
1: million you, people listening to revisionist history for it to be an ongoing concern.
2: I haven't I haven't done the math, but I suspect Something I suspect like that. that's right. And we have as a free podcast, we have significantly more than that right now, and that show does very well. But there are not many shows that have gotten anywhere near that plateau. It's a million per show,
1: or a million over the ten
2: no 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 we're, we're we're in the millions per episode so the millions there are there are multiple millions of subscribers per get work every with you. Uh, every episode now that's built over 4 years and that's not where we started out but for a less frequent well-made, should not say there aren't conversational shows that are well-made, but they're much simpler proposition. You have low overhead, low cost. Look, that can work. That was the model at Slate was these conversational shows, this GabFest model we developed there, which Vox does now. And, you know, three people, regulars, sitting around, having conversation about either politics or culture or technology or sports. The, I love those shows. I mean, I listen to a lot of those shows and I've been involved in making a lot of those shows. But I think it's, it's harder to make those work now, partly because the market is starting to be very saturated with them. And I think the, you know, the barrier to entry is low, but the barrier to quality is getting higher. Okay, so the, I understand why you need
1: it then. We just have a room full of, I would, I'm just gonna call you podcast nerds, and I mean that as a token of my affection, because I'm one. Um, but none of them are paying, right? Um, how do you get people who are not paying for a product and are consuming it already, they're not coming to it for the first time, to start paying? Well, what, Anyone? Uh,
2: yeah. I'm sorry, go, go ahead, Marshall.
4: Are you going to throw this one to me, are, so, are you? This guy
2: sells ads for I have too much have to say it. on this subject, so you talk.
4: Uh, I think that there will be a place where content is behind a paywall that is content-specific um, or of such a level, let's face it, people pay Sirius XM to listen to Howard Stern, okay, that was the, the, the yep. metaphor that everybody, or the analogy that everybody uses when we talk about, okay, well, will people pay to listen to audio content when it's kind of innately free to begin with? And in this space, it's certainly innately free. So will they? Yes, I think there's going to be a, a space in there, a segment in there, where people will say, okay, I will pay for that because it's such fantastic content. The production quality has to be very high, like you mentioned. And there has been a lot of investment in the space lately, so I think you will see it won't be three guys in the garage as much anymore, but that was the way the podcast space originally started. And, you know, like you said, comedians who were testing new material or promoting their shows or what have you, so that kind of thing. So I do see a universe where that happens. I think there will still be a robust ad-supported model out there um, for the very reasons we've talked about earlier, the performance. It's not a cluttered environment. I certainly don't want it to get that way. Uh, so I think it, that we will have a place where both of those universes can
1: coexist. Bethany, are you, are you paying for any podcast you listen to right now?
3: <laughs> I am not. And listening to this discussion, it's it's interesting. It definitely makes me nervous and thoughtful about the business aspects and ways I haven't thought about. I still start as somebody who's been a journalist for 25 years and has primarily been invested in the creative side, that if you're passionate about the content you're delivering, it will find a home somehow. It may take time and it may not be immediate, but I you know, I, I am really passionate about the business world and about things that I see as right and things that I see as wrong. And I'm really passionate about good journalism and about putting those two together. Um, and hopefully if I can produce something that is good and that I'm really passionate about, it will find a home over time. That may be a really naive attitude, but that's the correct uh, attitude that's, to have. That's, that's, that's what I want to start with.
2: I, I mean, I, I totally agree. I think with, with digital journalism, we waited too long collectively as an industry to get people used to the idea that it wasn't all free and it didn't work for it all to, all to be free. And there are uh, news organizations that are salvaging a paid business model and it's working really well at the New York Times and it seems to be working well at a few other places. But there, there are a lot of great journalistic institutions including probably the vast majority of local ones in this country that are going away because people got so habituated to free content and we didn't find a way to start right. charging soon enough. The flip side of that yeah. is
1: now everyone is asking for a subscription, right? And now you've, you've had your five clicks of Vanity Fair pay up, New York Magazine, <laughs> on and on and on. And there was a Trump bump, but everyone here has limited income. We can't subscribe to everything. Now you're gonna ask them to pay for a podcast. A related question, how do we feel about exclusivity? Uh, Everyone here who's listening to podcasts generally can listen to them through whatever device, whatever software they want. Now we're getting a world where if you want to get Bethany's thing, you're going to have to be a luminary subscriber, right? You're going to have to make that decision. So it's not just paying. It's that I have to get it through this platform, through this thing. It seems like we're adding another barrier we're asking people to jump
2: over. Right. I'll pay you $10 million to have no audience. That would be a bad deal, yeah. right? I mean, you don't want to have no audience. You want to make you want to you want the highest uh, com- revenue that's compatible with the largest audience. And there's there is a Venn diagram there where the where the sweet spot is. We haven't necessarily found it yet, but you'd you'd like to be available everywhere. You have that advantage of of the the open uh ad supported podcast environment but exclusivity is a way to get paid right so i think all of these experiments are going to involve degrees of exclusivity whether it's only being on spotify or it's only being on luminary or it's only being on stitcher plus or there's windowing at the beginning of a show the first month or six months it's only available in one place or another i think this is the year where we're going to start to see a bunch of interesting experiments around that Hello, it's Peter
1: again. We are going to take a quick break, back very quickly with Jacob Weisberg, Marshall Williams, and Bethany McLean. We've got 15 minutes, so let's open it up to you guys. There's a microphone here. Please come use it if you want to ask a question because this will be a podcast.
3: <clears throat>
4: Thanks for a fantastic session and interview. Um, it seems like the problem or the issue that you're wrestling with with regard to podcasts is how do you be able to provide good content not interfered with by advertising, which would be a necessary source of revenue, or avoid conflict of interest if there is uh, paid advertising that is being read. And, And even if the policy is not to have any influence by the sponsor for the content, how do you, how, how is the audience gonna believe that or accept that? Now, let me just say in full disclosure, I'm a physician, and we got nailed by Grassley in this conflict of interest thing, when it was totally, well, in some cases it was justified, but in many it wasn't. But it's an inherent conflict that exists so you need the revenue or else you won't have the ability to produce the content. How do you
1: deal with it? So I don't want to focus on Bethany because you've, you've done this. Because even though you haven't sold ads, right, you've worked for Vanity Fair, you may well know that GE has bought an eight-page spread or whatever. Maybe you don't know, but it, it comes back to you. You may also, by the way, know what kind of stuff sells well for Graydon Carter or his, predecessor or his successor. Um, this is still in the back of your head, right? I know that at some point there's an advertiser that may be upset with this. How do you grapple with that?
3: I, I don't actually, you really don't? I honestly don't don't think so, no. If anything, I did grapple with the, the, not really the flip side of that, but with the corollary of that issue, which is what's gonna be more popular. I mean, I can pretty much promise you the most popular piece I've ever done in my life was my profile of JLo and A-Rod. Mm-hmm. I <laughs> forget the substantive pieces I've done. My mother emailed me the other day saying, are you going to their wedding? <laughs> Um, anyway, so that's, that's, the, uh, that's, that, that's the, the side that I wrestle with more, is the, the content that's going to appeal to listeners versus the stuff that you want to do. I don't think anybody is going to listen to one of my podcasts and think that somebody in the business world is paying me to be nice. That's just not what the content is going to be. It's going to be challenging and provocative, and so I think it will be clear on the face of it that this isn't something that people are uh, paying to have, that, that advertisers are
2: paying for. I mean, I've thought about this a lot and I think it's the same across media. Podcasts are no different. The rules are have integrity because if you don't have integrity, rules won't protect you. Don't confuse consumers, listeners, readers about what is the ad and what is the content. And finally, don't let the advertisers affect the content. And that can happen in subtle or direct ways. If you follow those principles, I think you tend to be okay. There's a question here. Great. Great.
1: Oh, Great. sorry, Marshall. Must no, yes. that's
2: okay. I'm good. Uh, uh, I'm the advertising guy. I'm totally good
4: with that. I think there needs to be a clear delineation between your sponsorship element and your editorial. Have
1: element. you had an, a client come back and say that guy was way too hard on that industry and he didn't go after us, but he was hard on that industry? We don't want that. Uh, no, not not really. I mean, there's uh, you know a little you, bit. Uh, <laughs> as, you know, it, and we we
4: again we want a delineation there we don't want there to be any kind of uh you mentioned it i don't want i don't want my editorial content to be confused with an ad or vice versa so
2: and we're totally good
4: with that good
1: question here
2: i was just reading a a really interesting report about how things are done in china alternative business models and it mentioned a figure that just really stood out at me it said that the podcasting market is three billion dollars that there's some podcasters out there that are, you know, there's an economics professor that quit his job because he's made $8 million in his podcast. So, and, and the unique thing that they have is subscriptions and people buy packages of podcasts and there's a community around that. So I just wanted to ask you, I, I mean, is that, that's something that you could hold out there? Would that be something that you'd be willing to get into if there was a platform that allowed you to respond to comments that were time-sliced and, and you had a private community that people paid for?
4: Right, a little bit of, of- context on that the largest player in china is a company called himalaya They're represented in the united states now we've we've in conversations and that kind of thing their business model it's it's robust as he mentioned is built around education and people use the podcast which is the mobile delivered i can use it when i want to where i want to um at the time i want to as an educational tool and people will pay to learn economics they will pay to learn another language and they use that that's where the business model for Himalaya comes from is that educational window and so it is different than ours ours is more uh, it's not an education model it's not how we learn an additional subject it's how we're entertained or uh, you know informed or what have you so just a little context there
2: but there's a bit of an idea that you will pay for education and even here something more like the great courses Plus or so, some people will pay to learn something, but they don't have the same expectation about paying to be entertained, at least in, in audio form. Question here? Hello, hey,
5: Peter. Um, I will say, as someone who ran the New York Times Knowledge Network, people don't pay for the education part either. So, but, but I think uh, I moderated a session the other day about sensory experiences with audio. So we were talking about ASMR, these different pieces, and I'm wondering, like, and and a lot of people in the audience didn't know about autonomous sensory meridian uh, response. And I'm curious that Radiolab aesthetic, to Jacob's earlier point about why we listen to the ads and that kind of thing, I felt like there were some delightful experiences that public radio kind of trained us for. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit, because i'm I'm curious about like the ambient part and and how, if we're listening longer, what makes us listen
1: there is a There is a sameness to a certain strata of podcasts, right? Radio Lab sounds a lot like other shows. A lot of these shows all came out of public radio, right? Um, but they don't all sound the same. Joe Rogan doesn't sound like that. Adam Carolla doesn't sound like that. Do you think that, that we're going to have more and more different kinds of voices, or do you think there's actually kind of a, a thing that we all want to hear? I assume Bethany's will sound more like Radio Lab than Joe Rogan, for instance.
2: Well, I think podcasting as a whole comes a lot out of the world of public radio, and it largely extent reflects the values of public radio. It loves narrative, it loves high quality sound design it's a little uncomfortable with opinion and argument for lots of reasons and you know there's I mean Radio Lab is probably the ultimate expression of this of like what public radio people would make for themselves you know and I think podcasting you take a lot of those rules away, you take away the sixty minute clock, you take away the FCC you take away the fear that the congressman's going to get up and yell about your funding being taken away, and you're much freer to kind of express a point of view, and maybe the, there's a little less, this plenty of great storytelling in podcasting, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to be the only thing you do.
1: Yeah, but it does have a similar sound, but maybe I'm just obsessed about that. Next question. Okay. I'm Guillermo, founder of Cut. The question is about uh, virality. You mentioned that uh, podcasts aren't viral, uh, you think that that is in, in inherent to the format or perhaps is of the lack of the tools in the listening tools to share, for example, a five-minute segment and, and it's so easy to listen for just following the link for the, instead of starting an app. So perhaps there is a lot of friction uh, forbidding the virality of the podcast. Would it, would it be easier to make
2: podcasts go viral if we had better tools to make them go viral? I don't know what you think, Richard. I think the biggest factor is that Facebook doesn't support podcasting. I don't mean they don't support it as a concept, but they don't. It's not. It doesn't work the way video does on on Facebook. They haven't figured out a. They haven't um, dedicated any effort to making podcasts or audio shareable um, on that and and or on other major social platforms. Um, And the main support has come through Apple, right? So that's dictated just sort of how it how it works.
4: Right, yeah, I mean, it, Apple represents 65% yeah. of the ecosystem. I mean, I've and,
1: noticed whenever we, we, we do transcripts and write-ups of all our podcasts, and even when those things explode and we embed a player, and so you can listen to the podcast right here, so there's zero friction. You hit a button, you get to listen to it. The people who are reading those stories are not interested in listening to a podcast. It's a different audience, so we can make it as simple as possible, and it doesn't, or has yet to translate. Um.
4: I think that's accurate. Um, the audiences are, are, are different, uh, the thing it makes, podcasting. So uh, it's the it's the innate mobility of it. I mean, if, if I want to gather that content, I can't drive and read my Vanity Fair publication, but I can listen to it.
1: Although I just heard, I'm going to betray someone's confidence here, that they did Vanity Fair did 400,000 downloads of a Nick Bilton podcast about... Theranos, because the story had gone viral, so I don't know how, and I would be curious to know how many views that turned into podcasts, but let's let's go here.
5: Yeah, thank you so much for this. It's been really helpful. So I have a two-parter around metrics. So the first piece is we've done a lot of advertising, and we send them either to a unique page or have a code, and we find that it's because it's not like a direct click, that Listeners may not go to that page. They may go to just the landing page of the advertiser. Um, And that's, I guess, the first part is like, how do you work with that with um, marketers and kind of have them see the holistic picture and measure success? And then the second question I have is around downloads versus streams. Like, we find that a lot of listeners will just stream opposed to download. Why the focus on downloads over total listens?
1: It's you, Marshall?
5: Everybody's everybody's looking at me. I, uh, okay, first of all,
4: bless you for asking the first part of your question, because it is a it is a it is a constant in our world to try and interpret the data that we get. Because it, as much as I I we promote go to our. A vanity URL or or enter my code at checkout or whatever we forget we don't do it we go to Google and we type in the name of the company and we buy the product through that even if we're going to sacrifice the discount or special offer we may get so we use all of our clients use that because there is a percentage it's it's relatively low percentage of people who use that that vanity tool that that code. Um, Most of our clients also use a interstitial single pane survey that comes up during the transaction flow that says, how'd you hear about us? And we use that as a proxy or a metric to try and shore up that data. It's at best an educated guess, but it is still, even with that educated guess, we've we've found that it's very fundamentally a very successful channel for us. We are working, trying, working diligently to figure out that linkage between an ad being consumed and uh, through some pixel based tracking or what have you, somebody going to the branded web page, a conversion page, et cetera. So we're getting there. And what was the second part of your question? I downloads stream, versus
1: yeah. streams. Do you care?
4: Uh, no. I don't well, not d- from an advertising then, do you, standpoint. Do you think not
1: the at, industry cares? Or not are you even at told this point. they care?
5: I guess I just like we hear downloads all the time and I was just curious from the perspective, like, does listens count towards that number? Uh, we look at
4: downloads, and, and you know what? That's a good question, because as Spotify moves into this and it becomes an app-based delivery system versus download RSS feed downloads. Because you
1: won't download the spot on Spotify because you have you'll, Spotify. You'll right.
4: go through the Spotify app. Right. Okay? It's still a relatively small number of streams versus downloads. Downloads is still the lion's share, but um, I think it's something we very much need to keep our eye on going forward.
1: No, We can fit in a couple more questions if we go quick.
0: Yeah, I have a question. Um, I listened to the exponent podcast and they have an episode about Spotify's entrance into this market. And uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about their argument that Spotify could come in and make huge waves by the fact that they solve a lot of the problems you've raised like around discoverability, around getting analytics and metrics for like player listener behavior um, in terms of downloads and like how far they listen. And also just like simplifying the whole space for integration of ads. I'd, it wasn't really raised so much in this conversation, so I was curious.
1: So, we, we all get that, we're all excited because Spotify said, we're going to spend a lot of money on podcasts. That's good for all of us,
2: right? But beyond that, are they going to fundamentally change or solve some of these problems? Uh, one thing I think they're going to do is they're going to create useful pressure on Apple. So, Apple has been a blessing for podcasting. Uh, I mean, it exists because of Apple, but they haven't commercialized it because it's been too small to be relevant for them. And unless and Apple sees some commercial potential in podcasting. It's going to be hard for us to do what I was talking about earlier in terms of selling podcasts. You can't sell a podcast in the podcast app. Uh, And I think we would like to see Apple, speaking for myself, you know, we would like to see them feel some pressure. I think Spotify creates some pressure. They probably say they don't care about it, but I think they're, they're paying attention. Spotify starts from a very low base, but is gaining share, and they're inevitably gaining that share largely at the expense of Apple, which starts with a majority of listeners. So, you know, Jake, I think... The, the counter to that, that is we,
1: Apple's going to announce in a couple weeks, here's our new mega subscription product. It's going to have some news in there and, and something, and definitely video, because we just spent a couple billion dollars making TV shows. My my educated hunch is there won't be any podcasting in there in part because it's not a big enough business for them to care about. Either the collect the business collectively is maybe half a billion dollars, right? Apple famously doesn't care unless they can make a billion dollars or much more
2: off any individual product. At some point, it's it's pointed in that direction, and I think Apple. You, there may be a case to be made to Apple or at Apple that. Their entry into the business would significantly increase the total. If they started selling a bundled product around podcasts, you know, that could make podcasting a billion dollar business tomorrow. I don't know what they're going to do, but, you know, I I think, yeah.
1: Okay. Question here?
4: So I'm a Dan Costa, Editor-in-Chief of PC Mag. I've got a podcast called Fast Forward, which has far fewer than 50,000 subscribers. Um, but my question is about smart speakers, Google Home, the uh, Amazon Alexa. Have you seen people using this to consume podcasts? Do you think it's going to grow up and sort of broaden the base, or is it still just a headphone experience?
3: I've never, I've never used it that way.
4: There is some growth there, um, still very small. Uh, but there is growth there, and it's something I asked this question at a, a panel uh, I believe it was Saturday, and uh, it was the guy who's the head of monetization at the New York Times, and he said it's something we very much have to pay attention to uh, because I don't think the the consumer has started to use Alexa or Google Home or whatever it may be for that particular application to a great extent yet, but it's, it's as this generation that gr- is going to grow up on this device matures, that will be their de facto, this is how I'm going to get what I want to get.
1: So,
2: thank you. Got kind of the cool hat. You get to ask the last question. Cheers! Thanks very much. So, I'm not in the podcasting business. Might be a naive question, but it seems there's a big advantage to actually having people
0: listening on your platform because you're at that touch point. You can get these kind of analytics that you guys have been talking about. But the way podcasts are currently distributed and consumed is really not friendly to that. And so, how
2: do you create a platform where you can get that data and be part of that interaction, given the current climate where? People want to download it in a million different places, or stream, or whatever.
1: Do you want to create your own platform, or are you happy using the existing Spotify, Facebook, Apple, any all these other giant distribution points that exist already?
2: I think you've you've just explained why there is so many uh, podcast companies have been drawn to create their own platform because if you have an app, you can get all that data on the listeners in the app, but it's probably going to be a, a very small fraction of the overall. Listenership. So, with our company, we didn't think about doing that. We're 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 focused on the content and, and m- making shows that will be distributed potentially in in different ways. But you've seen a series of of apps created, uh, and as a listener, a few of those. I mean, uh, the Overcast, which I think is really good, Breaker, which I think is really good, offer f- listener features that are well beyond what you can get now in Apple. And they but they have very small they have small dedicated audiences relative to the whole market.
4: If you'd like to call Apple on the phone and say, hey, could you do this? We're open to that. <laughs> Look, they're here. Yeah, you can
2: find
1: them, I'm not gonna point them <laughs> yeah. out. Marshall, Bethany, Jacob, you guys are great. This is a great audience. Thank you for your time, I appreciate Thank it. You Thank you for good job. Thanks again to Jacob, Bethany, and Marshall for joining me on stage at South by Southwest love South by Southwest. I know it's fashionable to say you don't like it because it's too crowded and I think blah, 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 and there's no new Twitter, but it's, it's pretty great. Um, and if I saw you there and you said hi, hi back. Thanks to you guys for listening, whether or not you said hi. If you liked it, this far in the podcast, I think you liked it. Tell a friend. Thank you. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media who bring those sponsors to you for obvious reasons. Thanks to Jill Robbie, who edits this show, and to my producers, Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson. This is Recode Media. I will see you next week.